Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I want us to all commit in this session. We're all very tired. People up late last night. That there will be absolutely no petty fogging on this episode of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> petty fogging. Yeah. We should commit ourselves to not pressing on insignificant or petty details or being dishonest or unethical in insignificant matters. Like the fact Only that you – Only in really substantive matters. Like the fact <laughs> that Shane today managed to begin the show without the word so. <gasps> oh, I did. How Yay. That's so good. But Ben, you're already fucking petty <laughs> <laughs> You've already gotten us an explicit rating, um, and we haven't even made it to the opening music. <laughs> Let's do a podcast. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the petty-fogging edition. I'm Shane Harris. Um, if you were not up at, what is it, 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock It was pretty late. Yeah, so there was, just to, just to get everyone to speed, it was very late in the impeachment trial. And John Roberts had had enough, damn it, and uh, decided to admonish. He said, I think it is appropriate for you for, to admonish both the House managers and the President's counsel in equal terms to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. And then brought up something about don't be pettifogging or don't pettifog one another. You know, I, I, I want to defend if, – if this sounds prickly on John Roberts's part, I just want to defend him for a minute because – he presides over the Supreme Court where the kind of behavior by counsel that we saw yesterday would have been unthinkable – is unthinkable. And what did and, they do by the way? Well, I mean f- first of all – By the uh, way, I'm here with Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman, Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Yeah, yeah. You guys Hi, know the drill. You know yeah. the drill. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, diving, we're diving in. OK. Ben, what the hell did they do that made him whip out the petty file? I mean so first of all, the president's lawyers uh, – really did some personal attacks on Adam Schiff. but And the House managers returned with a bunch of sniping. And those are the kinds of things that Supreme Court appellate lawyers do not do. And I actually think the decorum of the way Supreme Court arguments are done has a lot to recommend it relative to uh, the kind of proceeding that we saw yesterday. And I think if you're the chief justice of the United States and you go from one to the other, it, you're kind of like, whoa, what kind of a zoo did <laughs> I just walk into? Welcome to the jungle, into? baby. Yeah. yeah. OK. So he realized just what a bubble he's been living in. But to me, it just confirmed the extent to which this entire thing is not about what's actually going on in the room and certainly not about – the deliberations of the world's greatest deliberative body. It is all a made-for-TV reality show. The president wants his lawyers to play it up that way. And uh, and so John Roberts, you know, may be jarred by that reality, but that's the reality he's living in. That's the reality we're all living in. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about that on the podcast today. The impeachment trial of Donald Trump has begun in earnest with that marathon session last night, hammering out the rules and procedures. Also, UN investigators say there is credible evidence that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia hacked Jeff Bezos's phone. Hmm. And you may have heard Ben and Susan have published a book. What? 
they published a book, you guys. No way. We're going to talk about Unmaking the Presidency, which is out this week. It came out on Tuesday. Uh, and we are going to go behind. We're going to go into the making of Unmaking the Presidency. It's <laughs> very meta. Yeah, it's very meta. It's very meta. It's behind the music. Um, all right. But let's start with uh, what we're already talking about the impeachment trial. Ben, we talked a lot about just, just in this few minutes we've been chatting about this, obviously, the the kind of tensions that were on display Tammy's absolutely right. This is kind of this like television moment. It feels weirdly scripted and at the same time sometimes kind of improvisational, like when the lawyers are taking shots at one another. But just briefly for us, tell us what yesterday's very long session was actually about and what it achieved. But more important, what do you think it tells us about how this trial is likely to play out in the days and weeks to come? Okay, I'm going to try to do this super briefly, but I think it was actually about three things. The first is the the House managers uh, laying out a very systematic case for A, how strong their case against the president is and B, why it is incomplete and requires certain sets of documents and certain testimony. And they made that case over a range of issues, uh, I think, extremely effectively over a lot of hours. Number two, it was about Mitch McConnell establishing control over the proceedings and uh, showing by rejecting these requests in a serial fashion in the face of a very strong showing just how good his control over his caucus is. And that is a very significant uh, thing. And number three, the third, I think, important point here is it gave us a very good indication of how interventionist John Roberts is going to be, which is to say not. And there were a bunch of points yesterday where a more interventionist-minded chief justice could have actually gotten involved and he really presided but did not rule. So uh, those are the three big things. What it means going forward is, um, number one, the presumption is going to be that Republicans are going to hold together. And so we're going to have a, a series of arguments made over the next three days and then you know, a showdown. And I think each vote is going to be hard for the Democrats to get. They need three or four of them, depending on what further questions about Roberts. But really, to be safe, they need four. And I think the presumption is they don't have them. What it further means is that I think you can expect they will be single-mindedly focused on presenting their case in a way that raises the pain threshold for the marginal Republicans who then vote against expanding the record. Right. I mean, it seemed, Susan, it seemed to me that, and, and some of these, you know, Republicans on the margin might vote later. I mean, after the after the cases have been laid out, which now is going to be three days for each side to do 24 hours. So we're looking at, I guess, like six days of argument before we get to a point where the moderate senators might be expected to come over and vote to bring witnesses or to hear more evidence, uh, although the evidence is going to be admitted now. That's another important thing. Maybe we're going to talk about that just procedurally, why that matters. But it does seem, given that the outcome of this trial is more than generally believed to be, it's going to end in an acquittal. I think Ben's on to something there where he talks about the idea here, making it 
deeply painful for these moderate senators who it seems to me at the end of this democrats might want to you know force to stand up and maybe even perhaps against their own better judgment be forced to side with the president after hearing all of this evidence what do you think about this i mean this is is being an event that is designed to really pressure a handful of republican moderates yeah i think that's exactly what this is and and really it's about clarifying the choice for all of them right they're doing the same thing vis-a-vis all republicans who are going to vote to acquit it's just there are only three or four republicans that actually care uh, or actually could be expected to care um and and that's that this the strategy here is to clarify the nature of this choice. And so, you know, the the House impeachment managers are arguing two things simultaneously. One is the existing evidence is overwhelming. There is not a lot of ambiguity in it. It presents a record that makes clear that the president of the United States did this and that it is unacceptable and that if you vote not to not to convict him, you are saying that it in fact is acceptable. At the same time, they also have to make the case of notwithstanding this overwhelming evidence, there's a lot more out there. There's even more uh, information and threads to pull and witnesses we might uh, we might want to bring in here. And by refusing to even engage in that process, you're violating an oath that you just swore to to do impartial justice. And and no one can deny that. And and we're at the very minimum going to give your uh, campaign opponents lots of good ad material. Um, so on one hand, you know the the, the Republicans, uh, the the House managers have, um, you know, sort of I think a pretty clear cut strategy that they're just sort of presenting the case with as much clarity as possible and sort of framing uh, the institutional stakes as clearly as possible. The president's defense attorneys. You know, there's been a lot of sort of focus on what is the nature of the defense going to look like, right? What argument are they going to use? We've seen the president say things. We've seen DOJ say things. Alan Dershowitz is saying things on Fox News. What's going to be the impeachment defense? Um, And the answer is all of it and none of it. And who knows? And and screw you and Pam Bondi yelling really loud and and just nonsense. And, And the idea here is that they're arguing not just in the alternative, but in a thousand alternatives all at the same time. The president didn't do it. Uh, and if he did do it, it was an impeachable offense. And, and, and if he did do it, it was a good thing and an affirmatively good thing for the president to have done this. And it violates the separation of powers. And we're not supposed to be doing the House's work for us. Uh, we're not supposed to be doing the House's work for them. And the judiciary is supposed to be doing this work for us. And right, and, and Pat Sabloni's there and he's moving the cups, moving the cups, moving the cups. And so you're trying to figure out like, okay, where's the ball? Because the idea is you want to respond to something. You want to say, okay, let me freeze this argument about executive privilege that you're making. And I want to respond to it and why it's not constitutionally grounded and why it doesn't make sense in impeachment. But but he's already over in the next thing moving. And so what it does is it makes it actually impossible to engage with at all. And I mean, I mean, over a 10 minute span of time here, right? This is not like different people are making different arguments. The same people 
in the same speeches are making points that are not logically consistent with one another. And, and that's happening really, really rapidly. And so, you know, I, I think part of that is designed just to sort of generate news clips. And, um, you know, look, I, I think Pat Cipollone and, and Jay Sekulow are, are very able lawyers. They're, they're good communicators. They look good. You take that clip, you know, sort of out of context, and they look like they're making an impassioned argument on the floor of the Senate and sort of perfect Fox News fodder. Um, and if you're sitting there and you're, you know, you're Susan Collins or your Ben Sass, and you're just trying to find your thing that you're going to hang your little hat on and say, this is why I voted to acquit. Not because I think what the president did was swell and good, not because I'm a craven coward that doesn't believe in my own oath of office or the oath I swore to do impartial justice, but because I have a deep-seated and abiding commitment to this, you know, whatever technical argument feels sort of best to me. And um, and so the problem is, one, um, the task of comparing, like, Apples and oranges, although that's not even right. Like apples and I, I don't know. Papayas. Like just uh, trucks. Or, exactly. Motor Monster dragons. truck rally. Like just, <laughs> I, I don't know, something totally freaking different. Um, uh, and actually trying to sort of engage with the substance at all, I think, is um, is really, really futile. And so the only thing that can be done here is to sort of ignore the president's lawyers, essentially, and, and just try and focus on the clarity of the case that the House is presenting. Okay. So I think both Ben and Susan are making important points about what has been going on inside the chamber and how it affects some of the individuals inside the chamber, like moderate senator, moderate Republican, quote unquote, senators who have to decide how they're going to position themselves relative to this. But I come into this discussion, I come into my observation of this impeachment trial with the understanding that we all know the outcome. It is, you know, Mitch McConnell has made it perfectly clear that the outcome is preordained. And so we have to understand what is coming out of the mouths of the president's lawyers or the House impeachment managers, not as trying to persuade anybody or even give anybody within the room an excuse for what they already know they're going to do. I think we really have to think about the people outside the room and how they're hearing all of this. And I think that's what the lawyers are thinking about as they measure their words. The Democrats are trying to lay out a case for November 2020. And that case is not about those individual Republican senators who may even be vulnerable. It's about the broader question they're trying to put in front of American voters, which is, is there anything left of the Republican Party except Donald Trump? And you're going to see all these Republican senators in one form or another lining up with the president. And the Democrats' case will be there is nothing left of this party except Trump. You may think you like your member of Congress or your senator, but look, all there is is Donald Trump. They will do anything for him. They will turn, you know, contort themselves in any manner. They will cast any vote on his behalf. And if that's the case, then you, voter, your choice is clear. You know, are you going to put your entire self and all your interests at the service of this president? Because that's what your senator and your representative are doing. So, Ben, let me ask you a provocative question then. If it is the case, and I think we've laid out here, I think we all pretty much accept that it is, that the Republicans are throwing, you know, 58 things against the wall 
to give you know a buffet of choices to the tr- Trump's supporters. Susan calls it a choose-your-own-adventure mode of acquittal. Right, exactly. So that's what they are there to do to bolster the president. The Democrats are there to force Republicans to twist themselves into pretzels and, in their view, you know, debase themselves in support of someone that they would regard as more of a cult figure than you know a head of a party at this point. Um, why is it then worth? the time and the voters' attention to go through a process that, while constitutionally sanctioned, is utterly theatrical and not really about trying a case against the president? You know, that's a really interesting question, and I'm not sure I have a great answer for it. So one possible answer is that it's not. And this is, you know, if you are, if you are, if your question is, if you have a doubt about how strong the case is against the president, then you should watch it. And when you watch it, you'll be able to evaluate your 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 doubt. Uh, and if you have a doubt about how much pretzel-like contortion Republicans are willing to do to protect the president and the cult leader, then you should watch it and that question will be answered. But if you don't actually have any doubt on any of either of those two points, uh, there may not be a, a great reason to watch it. Of course, that is true of most criminal trials too. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you did most people have like real doubt about whether O.J. Simpson killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman when they watched that trial? No, they actually watched it for the theatrical quality of it. And, you know, part of what a trial is, it's, it is at one level a truth-seeking mechanism. It is at another level a public display of the evidence and the arguments. And so if you're inclined to think that that's good theater, maybe the fact that it's purely theatrical is not a special problem. The OJ trial is a great analogy, first of all, because the audiences for that trial were very polarized and divided on the question of guilt versus innocence, and no one's mind was changed. But I would inject one more optimistic note from the perspective of Uh, democratic politics, constitutionally, a failure to convict here might be seen as a failure to enforce. But I would say there is a value in just the public exposure of evidence that does create a degree of democratic accountability, not institutionally, but perhaps politically over time, we can hope. Just one last thought on the OJ comparison, which I think is so apt, and not just because Alan Dershowitz is on the scene again. What was so striking about that trial as well is, yes, people in the public were solidified in their views of whether O.J. Simpson was guilty or innocent. The jury in that case chose to send a message. Yes. Uh, And there's been a lot of reporting on that very extensively and like them sort of, you know, to some degree even probably ignoring the facts and evidence. And that's what the really, to me, is an interesting analogy when you think about this jury being 100 senators wanting to send a message. Yes. And, you know, the – I mean just – to drive that point home, Donald Trump is not going to be acquitted because the evidence is not persuasive. He's going to be acquitted because the jury is going to engage in nullification, which is exactly what the O.J. Simpson jury did. Right. Okay. Let's move. I don't even have a segue for this next story because it is just – it's a little crazy. 
You it's, just you I'll just text did the segment. I'll text it to you. The segment. <laughs> ah, don't don't the open way. it. Don't open the file. So if you're the world's richest man and the owner of the Washington Post, and you're at a dinner with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, you, know, you might exchange cell phone numbers. Get his deeds. You know, get Follow your deeds. Up. Get the contacts. Stay in touch. MBS. Can I call you M? And then you know, you know, he might send you a video. Later, just following up, like, like a yo funny, Jeff, it's yo Big Jeff, Mo, it's me. Check Look it at this funny cat video slash promotional video for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and like, oops, it has spyware in it. Well, that appears to at least be that is the allegation anyway uh, of what happened. There's been a technical analysis that was done. I think we should be clear. It looks like by people hired by Jeff Bezos, um, and my understanding of who did the analysis is it's actually a credible person, um, and it was certainly persuasive enough to prompt two UN investigators, including um, the special rapporteur who investigated Jamal Khashoggi's murder and very definitively laid that at the feet of Mohammed bin Salman to say, we think there is credible evidence here that, yes, Mohammed bin Salman or a phone associated with him was used to implant spyware on Jeff Bezos' cell phone. Uh, This is in keeping, they say, with other behavior by the Saudi regime of using spyware to monitor dissidents. Uh, We have not seen the technical analysis of this yet, but the UN investigators have openly called uh, today, uh, Wednesday, for an investigation into this. And I think it's safe to say that there's going to be a lot more coming out about this. So, Tammy, my question for you is, you know, caveating, as we said, we haven't seen the technical analysis, but it's persuasive. What are the reasons that you can imagine why Mohammed bin Salman would want to hack Jeff Bezos' phone? And what are the implications of that within the context, certainly, as we said, of, you know, we know the Saudi government hacks the phones of people it doesn't like. Yeah. So um, let's just go down the list of consequences here. Number one, um, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia gets yet another really bad headline in the Western press about its behavior that contravenes basic norms of democratic societies. This is after the United States uh, government has had to severely restrict now its training of Saudi pilots because a Saudi pilot shot up Pensacola Air Base uh, a month or so ago. And after, of course, you know, a series of of really devastating behaviors by the, by the kingdom um, have been discussed in the international press over the last several years. That's number one. Number two is you know, this is a targeting a guy, Jeff Bezos, who represents, weirdly, one of the most trusted brands in the United States. Um, people, well, you might say two. Yeah, the Washington Post being the most <laughs> trusted brand, of course. Um, you know, Amazon is, is a brand that uh, it's something Americans engage with every day and young and old. Um, people trust Amazon, Jeff Bezos, who, you know, bought the Washington Post, helped revive the Washington Post and turn it into a juggernaut. And this is the Washington Post and Jeff Bezos, who have been very frequent targets of President Trump. And it's also interesting that the information stolen from Jeff Bezos's phone, apparently by the Saudis through the spyware, ended up being given to a tabloid company that is closely associated with 
President Trump supportive of President Trump. And well, we should say we don't know if it was the spyware that delivered it or – We don't know the, how the newspaper got yeah. the information. There's also evidence that it was Jeff Bezos's girlfriend's brother that did it. But yeah, go ahead. Right. So, you know, so there's there are a lot of pieces to this story that suggest that it is not unrelated to the broader context of U.S.-Saudi relations. And I'll just leave that piece there. I do want to make an additional note here, which is that Agnes Calamard, as you noted, Shane, has been an incredibly brave, prominent, consistent voice as U.N. Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Killing holding the Saudi government to account for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and pressing Western governments and the United Nations to keep this issue alive and demand accountability. In this particular report on the spyware on Jeff Bezos's phone, she's joined by David Kay, who's the UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Information. David Kay has spent a lot of time looking at the broader problem of spyware in the hands of governments around the world and the way it is being used to silence dissent, repress civic activists, and so on. And so I think it's fascinating that these two have come together on this particular case. And the, you know, the line in their report that really caught me is they say that the evidence suggests the possible involvement of the crown prince in surveillance of Mr. Bezos in an effort to influence, if not silence, the Washington Post for reporting on Saudi Arabia. So they draw a direct line to the Washington Post um, and to the expression of views that are contrary to the wishes of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Which also, just as an aside from my perspective working there, reveals the extent to which Mohammed bin Salman would not know the first thing about how the Washington Post actually operates. Right. Because to think that Bezos directs it, the coverage. Well, I suggest right? Yeah, exactly. It just doesn't happen. And frankly, you know, Bezos, when he wrote that Medium post, basically daring David Pecker and the National Enquirer to print the uh, uh, revealing photos of him, I think, you know, demonstrated that his independence streak. But Susan, I have a question for you. I mean, putting on your Intel hat for a second – don't we presume that if this is true, and it's shocking if it is, that if the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is being used as a vector to put spyware on the phones of some of the most important CEOs uh, in the country, that he might reasonably ex- we might reasonably expect he would be doing it on, say, oh, I don't know, senior administration officials who he regularly texts with on WhatsApp? <laughs> and I'm thinking of one in particular. <laughs> Of course, right? So the other person who routinely exchanges WhatsApp messages, which is itself rather problematic, um, uh, with MBS is Jared Kushner. Um, And this is a really good illustration of why uh, having private communications on private devices without going through secure channels, and, and let's be clear, Jared Kushner is doing this in order to hide his communication with foreign officials from other parts of the U.S. government. There are comms channels available to him to have secure communications. Uh, with anyone he wishes to, with foreign officials if he wishes to, um, and he can keep those confidential, but not from the U.S. government itself. And so that is the only reason why he would be exchanging WhatsApp messages. Um, This shows how reckless it is. It would be crazy to not assume that MBS had done this to Jared Kushner. If MBS was willing to take this kind of risk of doing this to Jeff Bezos, the idea that he wouldn't take a similar risk for doing it to Jared Kushner just isn't plausible to me. So if this had been a Saudi dis or, or someone sort of lower profile in the United States, or there's any number of people that we would say, well, maybe he did this to this guy, but you know, he wouldn't do it to a White House official. He wouldn't do it to Jared Kushner. 
That's just completely and utterly implausible to me. And I do think we have to operate on a working assumption that that Jared Kushner's phone and likely Donald Trump's phone has been reported over and over again. He continues to use an unsecured personal cell phone and um, that that has been compromised either in this manner or some other manner. And, you know, I, I also think it highlights um, how concerned we should be about Kushner's close personal relationship with MBS, who is not someone, you know, I, for all the things that we see him sort of stepping on one rake after another, uh, you know, in, in terms of really he appears to be the person who is driving these decisions from ordering the the murder of Jamal Khashoggi to actually being involved with this personally. Um, it, it's sort of bizarre. There's almost a... Um, like a Trumpian echo to it of like, how bad is your judgment that you think that, you know, you're the one who's getting all of these, you know, getting yourself into these situations over and over and over again? If you believe that you could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and get away with it, then why not? Kushner calls him MBFF. <laughs> but you, you know, Susan, you put your finger on something there. And I think this is a, this is a, a, a decent opportunity to kind of air some of these out. Is you know when I talk to people in the intelligence community over the years about Mohammed bin Salman, there is real questions that people have about his mental stability, that people have about his judgment, and I mean I'm, I I have no firsthand knowledge of that. I'd love anymore. to gloat about that, but like <laughs> we're, we're not in such great shape on that score ourselves. Well, you are free to make that point, right? And I mean, and I'm just you know to your point about the Trumpian echo. I mean, I think one of the things that is indeed so shocking about you know, the degree to which he was directly involved, according to all the evidence with the assassination of Jawaka Khashoggi, and potentially directly involved in like, he is the guy delivering the spyware in this scenario. Um, I can understand why there are people in the intelligence community that are utterly perplexed by his brazen, rash behavior, because frankly, what leader of an important government in his right mind would take these kinds of risks and expose himself uh, in this way, you know, these are these are things that are going to get out. I mean, eventually Jeff Bezos is going to figure out you hacked his damn phone and he's going to hire some pretty smart people to put the pieces together. Well, and the risk comes in using the material you obtain. So – Look, you know, intelligence agencies from all kinds of different countries um, compromise the communications of all kinds of different people all around the world. Um, and they don't get caught most of the time. At least the good ones don't get caught. Um, and that's because they don't try and blackmail people with text messages that they got from their phone in order to get AMI, you know, in order to get the Washington Post to say AMI has no political influence whatsoever in, in how they make their editorial decisions. And so what we're seeing here is the inability to resist the temptation, you know, to 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 use this stuff in, in this sort of, uh, you know, underhanded but also remarkably petty way, right? So you have leaders who ordinarily you're collecting this information for your national interests. You're, you're really trying to get um, inside the minds of decision makers so that you can make smarter decisions. And you choose to burn it on something so dumb and small. And that the part, that's the part to me that the place in which this becomes 
high-risk behavior, certainly having a leader individually be implicated uh, or potentially implicated here is just appalling and astonishingly bad judgment. Although, um, you know, you you could see a world in which they decided this was the only vector into Bezos's phone. He, he reportedly was um, quite well secured um, and but was willing to have these communications via WhatsApp. And they saw an opportunity and decided it was worth the risk. Um, but having undertaken these risks with all these consequences, and, and I think larger economic consequences, right, of people sort of not wanting to do business in, in the kingdom or, or not wanting to have a trust relationship that appears to be something MBS cares about, to then use it for something like this, that's the part that, that really sort of um, I find baffling and, and it strikes me as having like a real amateur quality. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that there's it is in the nature of these regimes that there is no real separation between the personal interest and the national interest. And boy, you know, that has a little bit of resonance we could reflect on at this particular moment in American politics. Yeah, we may even write a book about it or something. Well, well, okay, we'll get to the segue in a second, Ben. But hold your horses. If you are the super wealthy, newly appointed crown prince of an absolute monarchy, you know, a kingdom that is named after your family, you might not necessarily think about what's the distinction between your personal interest and the national interest or what level of national interest is best served by using the information you get from surveillance one way versus another. And so I I think the kind of arrogance or brazenness that you're reacting to, Susan, to me is part and parcel of the nature of this kind of regime. And it is precisely one of the dangers of this kind of regime that is so visible in the murder of Jamal is that, you know, this guy pisses me off. Let's get rid of him. And I can use the entire apparatus of the state to do that. And a confidence that the United States government and the current administration is going to let you get away with it. And so you don't really feel fear consequences because you believe that the strength of your rapport with our own princeling Jared Kushner uh, is, is strong enough that that apparently you don't you don't fear the consequences and by the way it appears they were right to not fear the consequences because the United States didn't impose any consequences either more horrifically uh, you know, for the for the Khashoggi murder, but even now, because because Donald Trump doesn't like Jeff Bezos, and he thinks the Washington he doesn't like Amazon, and he thinks the Washington Post isn't isn't fair to him and fake news, and so it, it's also a gamble on us, the United States, being willing to defend our own interests and the interests of you know significant uh, you know significant economic and, and business interests, um, and, and and I think a, a a shrewd and accurate bet that Donald Trump isn't going to care. Okay, so I just want to make one quick point about this, which is that the reason that this has been exposed is because Jeff Bezos has more money than God. Okay, he was able to withstand a threat of blackmail. He was able to, you know, have tight security, figure out what was going on with his phone, fire, uh, hire this forensics company to do all this analysis. And that's the reason that we know about this mechanism that the Saudi government is using to expose information of blackmail people to suppress dissent, you know, and and so Bezos, I, I understand people are like, oh, Jeff Bezos, he can take care of himself. Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because of what the case reveals. And we should be grateful to him for using his resources to make this public. 
All right. Although we'd be more grateful to him if he donated some of his resources to Lawfare. Okay, fine. (laughs) Just saying. That's your pitch, my friend. Um, Speaking of using their resources to make things public, I hold in my hands here a copy of Unmaking the Presidency, uh, which listeners to the podcast know was coming and know – how much work – well, you might have a sense of how much work Ben and Susan have put into this remarkable And we know book. you all pre-ordered it already. Yes. And you've Multiple prob- copies. And Multiple. you probably read it yesterday when it showed up. But – But I want to – we'll talk about what's in the book. But first I want to go a little bit behind the scenes. And Susan, I want to start with you. And my first question is um, when the hell did you have time to write this book? How did you actually do this? I mean this is a not insignificant – undertaking with you and Ben and even with two authors sharing the weight, um, this is this is quite a burden. So I'm actually interested in your process and kind of how you even organized your brain around thinking about how to frame this huge subject and find the time to actually write it down. I mean, the real answer is by neglecting my children and other responsibilities. Um, in terms of how we organized ourselves in this undertaking of neglecting friends and family, um, you will notice that we did dedicate the book to our spouses. <laughs> that is one something one might call a strategic decision. <laughs> this is all the first book for you guys. Um, no, it's not the first book. But he he already dedicated other books to the children, so it was my turn. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Um, you know, like we. Um, have been grappling with how to think about what Donald Trump is doing to the office, what is sort of the nature of his deployment. And, you know, we each had particular things that I think were points of of sort of specific interest. And and so each of us, as we sort of mapped it out, um, would kind of take the pen on a chapter that it was like, okay, I have this idea about, you know, how, how this is structured and, and you know, would would take it in and dig deep on it, and then um, and 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 you know, sort of do the bulk of of researching and and fleshing it out. Um, and then we would switch, and then we would fight over what got cut and which, like you know, we would we would have our favorite historical anecdote that we like were very precious about and and didn't want to lose, and um, and I think kind of sort of fleshed it out that way. Um, at least for me, my thinking evolved a lot, and so part of this book was just. Um, us trying to figure out what the hell is going on and what it means. And so it was also an attempt to organize our own thoughts and an attempt to kind of make sense of uh, of the world and, and of um, institutions that um, I think we both had uh, expectations of that have been sort of disrupted and unsettled and, and trying to evaluate in a serious and disciplined way what that means, trying to um, challenge ourselves on, is this just Trump derangement syndrome? And actually, no, you go to the historical record and all kinds of presidents do this. And it, it, there really isn't a, an institutional argument here. Um, and in what places is Trump really doing something completely radically different than anything we've seen before? Ben, I'm curious about your process in this too, but I also want you to talk a little bit about the story that opens, or the chapter that opens the book where you talk about the oath of office 
that Trump takes. I mean, going really to like the foundational element, right? The first thing that he did, the thing that he does that makes him president and talking about the test that it faces in the face of the travel ban. And I'm interested in this, both the anecdote and how you explored that story. But you have often kept returning to this idea of the oath and whether the president is even capable of meaning the words that he said. And I'm curious how you explored that in the first chapter. Yeah. So, I, I mean, to link your two questions, um, a lot of the work, the sort of theoretical work behind this book was stuff that Susan and I were doing both individually and together in the context of doing lawfare every day. And, you know, the oath chapter is a actually a good example of that. It kind of began as a uh, an essay that Quinta Jurassic and I wrote really early in the Trump presidency, I mean, within the first couple of months of it. And um, a lot of the a lot of the themes that we talk about in the book are things that germinated originally as lawfare posts, some of them dating back to the campaign. And, you know, the the concern about the integrity of law enforcement, literally the day after the election, within a couple days of the election, Susan and I wrote a piece warning that the president would fire Jim Comey. And so there's a bunch of stuff that we were working on along the way that kind of as this thesis about the nature of the the traditional presidency versus the Trumpian expressive presidency kind of distilled, uh, there was work that we were kind of already doing that we drew upon in significant part. Uh, the oath, with respect to the oath specifically, one of the things that on the ideas that underlies the book is that we understate in our conventional dialogue about the presidency. We understate the importance and the, in fact, central role that civic virtue plays in guiding the presidency. You know, there is actually no way to force the president to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. There's no way to do that. All you can do is make him stand up in front of the nation and promise to do it. And so the founders actually put a lot of weight on the oath because it's this surrogate for all the substantive provisions of our that embed our requirements of the presidency. It's the closest we can get to forcing him to be wise, to forcing him to be a good manager is to make him stand up and, you know, say, I promise to try to do those things. And one of the true, I think, defects of Donald Trump as a president and one of the ones that underlies a lot of the other defects is that he stood up and he said all the right words and he had the chief justice in front of him and he had Abraham Lincoln's Bible and it didn't seem like a president taking the oath because he is of a character that whatever you say about him is utterly lacking in civic virtue. And you can, you know, in the, in his admiring circles, people try to turn that into a virtue itself. They, like, you know, he's Cyrus of Persia or he's, uh, you know, a, a fighter, for, a street fighter for us, right? But nobody actually thinks he is somebody who displays civic virtue. And that makes it very complicated when somebody like that swears an oath of office. 
So I think the oath example that you just gave and the point that you made about civic virtue is a really important one because we can't just look at what Trump has done to the presidency through the eyes of the sort of textual um, or even historical basis of what the presidency is as an institution. The performativity of it is part of is a big part of the story here. And I think one of the things you guys did in the book that I really appreciate is looking at that practice, at the public practice of the presidency and what it has taught us um, about what the presidency means and, and what Trump has done to it. But I, I actually have a, a, a different question that I want to ask, which is, why did you dedicate the book to me, Ben? And, and when you were writing this book... <laughs> What skincare routine kept you going? Yes, I want to know that. Well, I mean, the first reason is that, you know, Susan, for strategic reasons, had to <laughs> had to dedicate it to Brendan. And so I wanted to give her cover for that. Oh, um, I see. You know, oh. It's, uh, it's just coincidental. You know, you're, you're really a really. sort of drive-by. <laughs> wow. That's love, y'all. Um as to the skincare regime, actually, I have a great skincare story related to this book. So I you get, do. yeah, I get up Monday morning to do Morning Joe. It is five in the morning to talk about our book, and you know, my face was just really puffy, and my eyes were, you know, Aww. and I downed some coffee, and I went on Morning Joe, had a really good interview about the book. I thought, but was very aware that my eyes were just puffier than... You didn't get the than... little cucumber slices? Well, so then I go out to brunch later in the day uh, with um, two uh, women with whom, I, with whom I work out. And I mention to them uh, that I'd just gone on Morning Joe uh, with puffy eyes. And one of them leans across the table and says, you should have come to us first. <laughs> and they gave me all kinds of advice about what to do about puffy eyes in the morning. Yes. And so you I... Plexiderm? I, so the next so book my, is going to be dedicated book, to them. The next basically. book will have no puffy eyes. So my skincare regime was to write a chapter and then I would stick my head in our oven. <laughs> and then I'd think, no! And then I'd go back and write some more. <laughs> Sylvia then I method. take my face really close to some glue and just like huff in yes. as deeply as possible. Kids yes. do not Activate try this at home. Cells. And then I just on the pores really it kind of helped um, just sort of cope with everything that was happening. Uh -huh. um, so okay, well that's, that's yeah. a, those are good tips. Yeah. Um, before we end this, I want to I do want to ask one more big picture question, and it's about shoes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you're making very clear from both the cover image and the title on this book when you say Donald Trump's war on the world's most powerful office and it's unmaking the presidency is the title and it is a picture of the White House being torn up. Very reminiscent, by the way, of him sitting there and tearing up the documents in the Oval Office that later had to be taped together and then the guy who did that was fired. Um, mm -hmm. But you're essentially saying you're, – you're making a much more assertive argument that I see a lot of journalists, frankly, make where they say, you know, Donald Trump is – you know, he's testing the bounds of institutions or he's presenting in such a way that he is this kind of exotic creature that everyone has to figure out how to manage it. You seem to be saying like, no, he is affirmatively going in and breaking things apart. Um, and put aside the question of whether that is willful or that is just his sort of bull in a china shop. 
uh, behavior. What I'm really curious about is where you guys come down on the idea that these things can be put together again once he is no longer the president. Yeah. So, you know, look, in in national security law and in the issues that we handle on lawfare sort of year after year, we've spent a lot of time focusing on sort of the core, the 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 outer edges of presidential power, right? Sort of litigating like, mm, can you do this, but you can't do this. And this is Congress and sort of where the powers of various branches like run up against each other and and then and, and what's happening there um, and sort of looking at it with a microscope. And, and what Donald Trump is doing is not at the outer edges. It's at the core of the presidency. It is the personalization and abuse of powers that the president clearly has, unambiguously has and possesses. And so this – I think the, the point of the book is that this isn't like a normal president where you're fighting over policy or you're fighting over sort of where they, where they think the edges of executive power lie. This is a president who is putting a vision on the table that – the purpose of the presidency is to serve the president personally and to serve the national interest only as an afterthought or when it's convenient or coincidentally. And that that is a vision that needs to be taken seriously because the presidency is a changeable institution. It's an institution that changes and that all presidents change in various ways and that the choice we're facing in 2020 is not a marginal choice about a policy or or where we think you know what we think sort of the the uh, you know best theory of of you know executive power lies. It's the purpose of this office. It's it's the covenant with the people about public service and civic virtue. And that you know Ben wrote a, in one of the the early posts that sort of started our thinking about this. Um, I think a line from it was um, the only way to tyrant proof the presidency is to not elect a tyrant. And the abuse that we're describing here and trying to analyze and put in historical context, the the cure to that is not to elect a person who has this vision of the presidency. And so I think we, we wanted to be clear about the stakes uh, and, and really spell it out because People need to recognize that um, the choice that's before us really in the next year is about fundamental core foundational things. And and we've had lots of bad presidents, both presidents who are bad at their jobs and presidents who are bad people. Um, and most of them are just sort of aberrations. And the way we decide whether or not there's just like a weird blip that like that four years was kind of weird or we – instead fundamentally transform the office of the presidency, which has happened before, is when we decide to reelect someone and we sort of ratify that this use of presidential power, not just can the president do it, but he should and it's good. Um, and, and so I, I think that's sort of the, um, the urgency of it and, and the urgency of the election that's coming up. Okay. Let's move on to object lessons. Uh, Tammy, why don't you go first? Um, Okay, my object lesson is perhaps an attempt to inject a little bit of lightness into the heaviness of this week, but it truly, honestly is the thing that I thought of immediately when I heard Chief Justice Roberts use the word pettifogging. Yes, it's oh. Foghorn Leghorn. Yay! <laughs> I, oh. He 
just leapt immediately to mind. And I don't know what Foghorn Leghorn would do with this impeachment trial, um, but I hope it can at least bring a smile to our faces. I wish John Roberts would just like do a, a Foghorn Leghorn impersonation. So I say, I say, I say, I say, the two of you need to be humble aside. Both of you, I say. I think it's hard time. It's appropriate, I say, to admonish both the House managers and the president. I'm not going to do it anymore. (laughs) It's hard to imagine John Roberts doing an impersonation of anything. John Roberts is the chief justice so famously humorless that he forbade clerks from wearing Halloween costumes. Although although he did, like, the first time I was in his chambers, he very graciously shows me over to this bench that I sit down on. And then, like, coyly informs me that I'm sitting on the bench on which John Quincy Adams had died. <gasps> and, and I am sitting there like this, you know, sort of like really self-conscious the entire rest of the conversation. I hate when that happens when I'm in Supreme Court justices' chambers so and they pull and a prank like a that curse. all the time. <laughs> um, I'll go next. Um, I have a movie recommendation this week. A national security-related one. So I saw 1917. Uh-huh. Um, it's good. I'm going to recommend that people go see it. I know you were waiting to make that decision until I told you it was okay, and it is okay. Um, technically, this movie is kind of astonishing. Like, a lot's been written about how it, it, it appears to almost be done as, like, one take. Even though it wasn't, actually. It, it was wasn't, but they're cleverly, cl- cleverly edited, although there, there clearly are scenes where it's like, oh, my God, I think this might be, like, a three-minute take. Um it, it, and the story is like the story itself is, you know, it's good. I mean, it's compelling. It's sort of a microcosm. A lot. But it reminded me of something. And maybe listeners will educate me on this. I don't know that there has ever been like a really great movie about World War One. Gallipoli. OK. Gallipoli oh, yeah. is a good and exception to that. If you have not seen They Shall Not Grow Old. Oh, the documentary. Right. Tremendous. Right. Exactly. One thing this movie does, I mean, very well <clears throat> is capture in vivid, de- vivid detail um, – you know, how horrific, I mean, it was. I mean, War Horse sort of tries to flick at that a little bit. But, like, there's very clearly a first 30 minutes of Saving, Pri- Saving Private Ryan going on in this movie where it is just relentlessly gruesome and the trenches are very tight and it sort of gives you a sense of that's from a technical perspective. It's great. But it is interesting how, you know, we have been – I mean, World War II has dominated popular culture. I mean, for obvious reasons. I mean, the great directors of the era, I mean, literally were making propaganda films during World War II. It's a subject they were familiar with. And they've kind of transitioned from the John Wayne heroic type films to the much more graphic Steven Spielberg ones. Um, But God, what a reminder that like this is a just a genuinely untapped source of material um, for cinema. I mean, why hasn't someone made Guns of August into a film? I mean, that's it's kind of amazing. My father, who uh, has always maintained that the greatest film ever made is Grand Illusion, uh, which is a World War One movie, uh, would beat me about the face and neck if I did not mention Grand Illusion. So there's another having, one. Having been solicited for World War One films, uh, for those who have not seen it, it really is a magnificent piece of Check work. Check it out and pray that Michael Bay does not make a World War One. Oh, God, film. help us. Okay. Um, ben, what is your object? 
Uh, I have a little bit of a complicated object, um, which uh, will be out by the time I think. It's not out yet as we record, but it will be out by the time anybody listens to this. So a while back, I became convinced, and I'm going to, I'll spare you why right now, but I do plan to write about it. I became convinced that there was a very large volume of automated trollbot accounts in mm. on response to my uh, Twitter feed. And whenever I would tweet something, I would get this very consistent response. And I asked somebody to look into it for me. And by the time I did this, uh, a lot of the accounts had ceased to exist. And so the results were kind of inconclusive. But recently, I noticed the same thing happening in Lisa Page's new Twitter feed. And so I did a, a little experiment, which was every time in response to a tweet that she posted, I ran every response that seemed hostile through this service, Bot Sentinel, which is a, a machine learning algorithm that tries to identify troll bots. And I noticed a high degree of apparently automated activity in response to Lisa's feed, which I tweeted about. So this morning, I get a message from the uh, gentleman, a gentleman named Christopher Boozy, who uh, uh, created Bot Sentinel, who informed me that in response to uh, this experiment that I'd done, they analyzed more than 3,000 accounts uh, replying to Lisa's recent tweet. And approximately 1,100 of them were rated as alarming on the Trollbot scale, uh, which is uh, nearly 30% of the um, tweets in response to her tweet. And uh, that that it almost never happens in their normal analysis that they identify more than 15% as alarming. And uh, so they are planning to release the full report on uh, automated activity in response to Lisa's account uh, this afternoon. We hope to have something about it on Lawfare. But I would just want to point out that, uh, first of all, Bot Sentinel is a, you know, like all tools for this sort of thing, it's probabilistic and it's, um, and it's imperfect. It's super valuable. And people uh, who are interested in trolling and what bots are doing on Twitter uh, I, I think it's a really remarkable uh, tool. Uh, and secondly, uh, when you see a barrage of vile, misogynistic, disgusting shit in somebody's Twitter feed, consider the possibility that 30% of it might be bullshit. And I, I noticed it in my Twitter feed probably about a year ago, and it's gotten more dramatic since then. And I'm hoping to do some analysis of my own Twitter feed to sort of see what percentage uh, seems to be automated activity. But the, this initial effort on Lisa's feed seems to suggest that there's something that some very large percentage is actually, uh, you know, troll bots, automated garbage. Oof. <clears throat> Well, that's an optimistic note to end on. Actually, it is because we can <laughs> identify it. They're all petty we, we have the tools. We can. We can attack the tools. We have the technology. We have the technology. Well, we also have the technology to make a podcast, but unfortunately, we have to end that podcast now. Aww. So sad. Uh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy petty fogging challenge coins. 
Foghorn Leghorn Challenge Coins. Foghorn Let's Leghorn Challenge Coins. At chickenbucket.lawfarestore.wings. <laughs> That's exactly correct. Correct. Okay, good. <laughs> you can follow I'm us. totally not fighting with you about this anymore. <laughs> Uh, one day we're going to just pick the perfect website merch, name. Merch, 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 merch. You can find us on Twitter along with lots of other troll bots, I guess, at RATL Security. I never checked if anyone's trolling that account, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Who troll <bother>? away. <laughs> Go ahead. Go for it, guys. Do your worst. <laughs> you can follow – no, really don't. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook whenever you download the podcast. Please remember to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Hadley Baker. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Jay Seculo, Pam Bondi, and Pat Cipollone and their new Bayou Bluegrass Trio, Petty Frogging. Oh, Excellent. nice. Eat those frog legs. <laughs> Sophia Yan is not coming along for that boat ride. Absolutely <laughs> she not. She would eat some frog legs. She though. totally would eat frog legs. Yeah. And she would remind them to remember where they were. And she would <laughs> have dignified. She would say, more frog legs. More frog legs, please. You get it? No. Frog more. Uh, okay. More leg more. More okay. frog legs. All right, that that's, that's enough. <laughs> On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>